This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shops, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. How quickly political fortunes can change. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak is seeing his family's tax affairs brought under serious scrutiny and many in Westminster are wondering if he can kiss any prime ministerial ambitions goodbye. On Sky News, Trevor Phillips resumed the interviewer's chair once more to question the policing minister Kit Malthouse. He asked Malthouse about the non-domiciled status of Sunak's wife Akshata Murthy, who had not been paying UK taxes on the income she earned from the Indian company Infosys. I wonder if he's listening to the many people in this country who are furious at the revelation that he's raising taxes while his wife made a choice to pay tax, not to the country that uh, her husband's asked to make these sacrifices, not to the country that puts a roof over her head, but to to India. Now, I know it's, it's, it's legal and all that. You don't need to explain that to me. But politically, just a terrible mistake. Massive tin ear here. Well, first of all, it's worth pointing out that, um, as Ms Murthy said, she paid UK tax on all her UK income. Uh, But you will have seen her statement. She accepted that um, there was a sense of disquiet about the situation and she's moved to uh, correct it. Now, she is a non-combatant in the political fray. um, uh, But I think both she and Rishi have recognised that that situation was not one that that was favourable and it was distracting from the overall message. Um, You know, he's put a huge amount of effort, time, commitment and energy into helping this country get through the last couple of years. Um, And it's unfortunate that his wife has been drawn into this political fray in this way. They've now corrected that situation. Um, Hopefully we can move on. Phillips followed up by inquiring about the Chancellor's green card, which he has held since before he became an MP in 2015, meaning he was obligated to pay American taxes until last year. We now discover, uh, courtesy of my colleague here, Sam Coates, that um, for the first 18 months uh, as Chancellor, he held a green card, which you will know means legal permanent resident of the United States. Uh, Essentially, you know this also, that uh, that means the United States expects him to pay taxes on whatever he earns in the whole world to them first. Now, not good, is it? I mean, this is really uh, in a time when we want the whole country to trust government and support what it's trying to do. It's pretty, uh, it's not a good look, is it? Look, Rishi Sunak was obviously somebody who it's worked careless, hard. At least, got, well, got himself a place uh, overseas at Stanford, got a job there, and required a green card as a result. My yeah, understanding but that's years that, ago. Yeah, but my understanding was, Trevor, that this was a hangover from that time, um, and that very often uh, people with green cards who don't go to the United States and don't take advantage of it, it just lapses and gets removed. Now, you know, he obviously... Yeah, but he's not... Come on, come on, Minister, he's not just anybody. He's the Chancellor of the United Kingdom. I understand, but my... my, I mean, I don't understand the intricacies of the of the green card system. But as far as I could see, and as far as I understand, it actually added more complexity and more onerous obligations to him, not 
less. And it certainly didn't impact on his tax position in the UK where he was paying tax. Uh, but look, it may be worth you in the future getting him on to talk about that stuff. As far as I could see, he took advice from the American uh, officials. He handed his green card back when he was there and regularised that position as well. Phillips then spoke to the Shadow Home Secretary, Yvette Cooper. There have been considerable delays involved in the government's Homes for Refugees scheme, with only 12,000 Ukrainians having arrived in the UK out of roughly 80,000 applications. Phillips asked her what steps could be taken to streamline the process. One simple way of cutting through this would simply be to drop the visa requirement, as has been the case in uh, countries on the continent. Would Labour support the removal of the visa requirement uh, for Ukrainian uh, asylum seekers, essentially? We think you should drop the extra bureaucracy. You can simply do security... Well, I'm asking specifically about the visa requirement. A kind of Would emergency... you drop that? Yeah. So, so we've described a kind of emergency visa, which is effectively just the security checks. That's what we need to do. You don't need a lot of this additional visa requirements, for example, to come on the Homes for Ukraine scheme... Ukrainian families are supposed to prove their residence as to where they were living before the 1st of January. So people are uploading utility bills or other kinds of details. That then has to be checked by caseworkers. That then adds to delays. The point about security checks is ministers and officials have themselves admitted you can do them on the spot. You can do them within a matter of hours. So there is absolutely no excuse for these weeks of delays. We should be able to just do this and grant people permission to come pretty much instantly and get those checks done straight away. So, to be clear, uh, an emergency visa is still a visa, but you would only apply one test which you think could be passed within hours about whether somebody's a security risk or not. It, do you really think believe that? Yes. How yes, would you so know? With the How would you know somebody says, I'm, I'm, so not, I'm not a Russian, I'm not a member of the Wagner Group, I'm not coming to us. How, how would we actually be able to know that within hours? These are the standard security checks that we already do, um, sort of standard checks with, with passports and, and so on. And ministers and officials have themselves said, they've themselves said that security checks can be done online. They've themselves said that these security checks can be done either on the spot. You're effectively checking somebody against a database of wanted criminals. You're, you're checking people in that respect. Labour has announced a new plan to curb crime with the introduction of neighbourhood police hubs. Phillips asked Cooper to elaborate on the matter. Why not just more police? We do think that we need more police and particularly more police out on the beat in our communities. We had huge cuts to policing, which the government has finally accepted it needs to start to reverse, although there are still fewer police than there were in 2010. But even now, we're still not seeing the police back in the neighbourhoods. It was one of the most important policies Labour had, was to set up neighbourhood policing in our communities to tackle antisocial behaviour. We're at a time when crime has gone up, when prosecutions have gone down, and in in many communities, antisocial behaviour is rife and isn't being dealt with. That's why we want to set up neighbourhood police hubs in communities, in towns right across the country to bring together the police, local council officers, to tackle that antisocial behaviour that is making people's lives in misery. And we pay for it by saying cancel the royal yacht that neither the Navy nor the royal family want and use that money to cut crime and antisocial behaviour. On the BBC, Sophie Rayworth interviewed the Green MP Caroline Lucas in the week following the launch of the government's energy security strategy. 
Ray was asked about why the Greens were not inclined to entertain more nuclear power as a solution to combating climate change. Why are you so against nuclear power? Because it's simply not a solution that can be fast enough to get us out of the energy crisis that we face right now. Take Hinkley C, for example, the, energy, the, the nuclear energy plant that's being built in, in Somerset right now. It's massively over budget and it's massively late, about 10 years late. So nuclear is very slow. It's hugely costly um, and it won't address people's cost of living crisis right now and the energy crisis that we face right now. That's before we even get to the fact that um, we don't know what to do with the nuclear waste that we're still creating. We haven't found that underground storage capacity that we still need. It is the distraction from what this energy strategy should have been about, which is to have put energy uh, efficiency and energy saving right at its heart. That's what would have made a real difference to people up and down the country. Having a council-led house-by-house home insulation programme that could really have stopped people's energy bills rocketing because so much energy is going out through the walls, out through the roofs. Is it not compatible, though, with a, an energy strategy with more renewables? I mean, the United Nations says that the world's climate objectives will not be met if nuclear technologies are excluded. Why are they wrong? There are plenty of other academic studies that will show how you can reach net zero uh, fast without using nuclear. As I say, here in the UK, um, more nuclear power stations would take between 10 and 15 years to come on, on stream. They are twice the cost of practically any other energy uh, source. They're the only energy technology that have increased in price in recent years. It is simply an irrelevance when we come to what we need to be doing in this country, which is a massive expansion, for example, of onshore wind, which was completely lacking in the government strategy this week. That's quite extraordinary, given that it's the cheapest form of energy, that it has massive popularity in the country. And yet, basically, we've got a government held hostage by, uh, by, by a handful of its backbenchers who don't think that wind farms are sightly. Well, that's that is not the way we should be designing our energy policy in this country. And finally, Ihor Jofu, a senior advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky, spoke to Rayworth about Boris Johnson's unannounced visit to Kiev yesterday. How did this visit come about? Did uh, Boris Johnson ask to come or did you invite him? Well, any visit is what is happening now to Ukraine is, is happening on the invitation of President of Ukraine. But obviously, when Prime Minister Johnson received this invitation, he, he, he agreed. So it might be a surprise for you, but it was not a surprise for us. We were preparing for a while. But really, this visit was uh, very timely and very important in terms of war. How important, how much of a difference does it make? Well, you know, uh, we met Prime Minister Johnson just uh, before the war, and we were discussing with him all the potential, uh, all the potential danger which Russian aggression might might have. And, and Prime Minister was very supportive. Now, when the war is happening, uh, you see that many more leaders are coming to Kiev to express their support. But all the visits have to be not only the, the, the show of support, but something which have a meaning, uh, which have a, uh, you know uh, uh, results and. Uh, that's uh, where we had results yesterday because uh, Prime Minister came not empty-handed uh, and really uh, he discussed with President Zelensky many things in terms of military support, in terms of financial support, in terms of further rebuilding Ukraine when we will win. So it was very timely and helpful. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Matthew Taylor. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily Evening Blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend 2022.